You are listening and streaming Ariva Martin in real time. I'm Dr. DeCordelai Corte right here on KBLA Talk 1580. Uh, you can typically find me on on a, a more perfect union. I, I moderate that show as I also serve as chief national political analyst for KBLA Talk 1580. And so if it's Sunday on the 10s, that means 10 a.m. Pacific or 10 p.m. Pacific. Uh, you should be tuning in to KBLA Talk 1580 where you can hear a more perfect union. But today I'm filling in for Ariva Martin in real time and in good company. I'm joined by Nick Wilson, the senior director for gun violence prevention at the Center for American Progress. Also, Terrence J. Evans, director of Region 9 of the National Bar Association. Uh, welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. Well, thank you. Thank you for being here. And, you know, uh, first things first, um, Jacksonville has been heavy on my mind. I have a feeling it's been heavy on your mind. Um, uh, I, I want to ask you, Nick, uh, to reflect on some of the comparisons that folks are drawing between the white supremacist violence that uh, we've seen in Jacksonville. It's being investigated as a federal hate crime. Um, and right away, like so many folks, um, you know, you and me both, you know, thought of uh, what happened in Buffalo. Uh, we thought of the manifesto uh, that was left behind there and has often been left behind by white supremacists, uh, you know, committing such violence. And so talk to us uh, uh, about um, the comparisons between Jacksonville and Buffalo, um, not just in terms of what happened, uh, but in terms of the action uh, that uh, these events have inspired thus far. Yeah, unfortunately, um, they're anti uh, hate crimes and violence motivated by bias are at an all time high and growing. So my team was actually already looking at the latest statistics on hate crimes and the intersection with gun violence um, last week before the shooting. And we were thinking about all the many tragic shootings against the anti-Jewish, against the Jewish community, against the LGBTQ community, um, against Latino communities. Uh, but really, we've noticed that the most hate crimes are committed against the Black community. And unfortunately, we're starting to see these real patterns. Um, and it's almost getting becoming predictable. Uh, these young white supremacists, usually radicalized online, they do their research and go out of their way to find areas um, with as many Black people as possible. The weapon of choice is an assault rifle, both in Buffalo and in Jacksonville. Um, they drove quite far to find an area, the probably black neighborhood. They use an assault rifle with swastikas hand-painted on the barrels. They would have a tactical bulletproof vest so they could take down as many people as possible using latex gloves. And they would leave behind these racist manifestos. Um, clearly, that made it very clear to law enforcement right away what their motivation was. Um, it's really... a a really rising concern that there's this online radicalization, there's this hate across the country, and at the same time, we're loosening gun laws in states like Florida and Texas and making it easier for anyone to get their hands on guns, even though they pose a risk to their communities. Um, so it's been really heartbreaking to see that Jacksonville will be going through the same uh, years of trauma and recovery that Buffalo has, who's still hurting and still feels like their community is different and won't be changed. And asking the federal government for more resources and investments because it can devastate entire communities, especially when it's targeted against a particular community. And we're not just loosening gun laws across the country, but we're also uh, erasing history. 
uh, we are really censoring uh, our curriculum across the country. Uh, Terrence, just earlier, you know, you reminded us that uh, not just the curriculum uh, in places like Florida uh, that are going after Black history, but there are 28 states and counting across the country that are following Florida's lead in the wrong direction um, on issues related to Black history uh, in school curriculums, but, you know, that are a part of the momentum that's driving this uh, movement against all things related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, Absolutely. UCLA Law School has actually been tracking this, and I've been paying close attention to this as I've traveled around the country talking about racial justice. And as you mentioned, 28 states have followed Florida's lead in banning the teaching of Black history as it actually happening, uh, banning diversity, equity, and inclusion training. It's even bled into some of the blue states. In California, there are two school districts that have followed to Orange County and Paso Robles County. And you see this wave of anti-Black education and curriculum and legislation, everything from the affirmative action decision to now attacking employment of African-Americans at law firms. You may have seen the uh, recent lawsuits against uh, 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 Perkins Coie and also uh, Morrison and Forrester for their diversity and recruitment programs that target Uh, African-Americans and Hispanics. So you see this wave of anti-Blackness overtaking the country, fueled in part by some of the politics on the right, to be quite candid. Uh, And it really fosters these anti-Black sentiments that uh, inspire some of these uh, people who are misdirected to go and enact uh, physical violence against our community. So we really have to look at this, not only from the physical violence, but the erasing of our education, because when you're able to dehumanize people by not understanding their history and where they come from, it makes it easier for people to then act in a violent manner. Do you you think that uh, our elected leaders are doing enough uh, to, uh, you know, sort of shore up uh, where we can, uh, uh, if we can't sort of blunt, uh, you know, legislation, you know, aimed at, at, uh, at uh, you know, really complicating um, our history, uh, if not erasing it outright? You know, I don't think our elected leaders are doing enough, but I think that this is something that's bigger than what our elected leaders, especially in the red states, can accomplish. It's really going to take our entire community and all of our allies to fight and demand that our history not be erased and to take personal responsibility for educating our young people so that the history that uh, really made us who we are is not forgotten. I was at the African-American Museum last week. I went there three times. I spent 15 hours there. So much rich history that I didn't know. And I'm a student of Black history. I think we have to do everything possible to make sure that we preserve this history and educate people about the hardships that we've overcome to get to where we are today. And speaking of folks who are doing everything possible, the Michigan Republican Party, they're starving for cash, but a group of prominent activists, including a former statewide candidate, uh, was hit this month with felony charges connected to a bizarre plot to hijack election machines. And in the face of these troubles, suspicions, and infighting, uh, that's been running pretty high in uh, a recent State committee meeting led to a fist fight, spinal injury, and a pair of shattered dentures. That's how serious it's getting in Michigan. 
The turmoil uh, is one measure of the way Donald J. Trump's lies about the 2020 election have rippled through his party. Um, I've got to ask you, uh, Nick, um, you know, the GOP presidential debate last week um, really put on on full display, you know, people that I assume are sort of the standard bearers right now uh, in the Republican Party, uh, with the exception of Donald uh, Trump, the former president who did not participate uh, in that debate. Uh, but uh, to what extent is what's happening in Michigan, you know, the infighting that's happening in Michigan, to what extent might it be a sign, you know, that, uh, you know, there is a movement afoot around accountability uh, in the Republican Party, particularly in a very important swing state like Michigan? Uh, to, to what extent is there reason for cautious optimism? If any. And um, uh, Nick may have some trouble with his audio, but I want to go to, to Terrence and, and, and ask you uh, your take on that. Absolutely. Well, what we see here is a bit of irony because uh, many of the folks on the right have uh, push these voter suppression laws. We've seen the U.S. Supreme Court uh, from the Shelby County decision to some of the more recent decisions uh, eroding uh, the, the Voting Rights Act and access to the ballot box for communities of color, while at the same time, these same communities are unwilling to accept the results of legitimate elections. We see what's happening with the former president of the United States and all of the folks who are his co-conspirators who were indicted in Fulton County, Georgia, uh, where they are actually the ones who are trying to um, uh, interfere with legitimate elections while making it harder for the rest of us. I think the silver lining here is that we're seeing accountability. And this is what happens when you have people in positions of power, from Fannie Lewis to the Attorney General of the state of Michigan, who are in positions of power to enact um, and to enforce uh, legislation that will uh, protect the integrity of our elections. And 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 should we should we be connecting the dots between some of the violence that's happening even within the Michigan Republican Party? I mean, I just said, you know, that uh, a committee meeting, you know, tensions in a committee meeting led to a fistfight, a spinal injury, and a pair of shattered dentures. Uh, and and I can't help but just sort of think about you know, the demonstrations of violence, you know, that have become, uh, you know, commonplace, right? And so whether we're talking about, you know, a white supremacist uh, leaving a manifesto in places like Jacksonville, you know, uh, or we're talking about a white supremacist, you know, going after, you know, black folks, you know, in a supermarket or a church or what have you, right? You know, uh, uh, or, you know, we're seeing, you know, somebody, that was inspired, you know, by the MAGA movement, um, sort of bludgeon, uh, allegedly bludgeon, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi's husband in their home. But we're just seeing so many demonstrations of violence, oftentimes with firearms involved. You know, uh, Nick, are we wise to to connect the dots, you know, between you know the rhetoric and these demonstrations of violence, um, especially uh, when, uh, in many cases, guns are involved? exactly right. And as Center for American Progress, we really try to take an interdisciplinary approach because it political violence and threats to our democracy and white supremacy and firearm violence are all interrelated. Just today, Representative Justin Jones, one of the Tennessee three, uh, he was silenced again. And then one of the Republican congressmen 
uh, help, uh, put a shoulder into him and um, hit him with his shoulder. Uh, before January 6th, insurrectionists armed with firearms tried to kidnap the gov- Governor Whitmer. Um, and we've seen as we've seen more and more political violence and more and more um, politicians using rhetoric and using firearms and shooting their opponents' photos in their campaign ads. No wonder more of their followers are, are going out and committing political violence on their behalf. And if we don't start addressing the role of social media and tech and online in radicalization and leading hate speech into violence, then we're going to ha- have more of these type of tragedies, more of these conversations. When we come forward, I want to pick up on that thread and I want to get your take, you know, on the role of, of social media companies um, in, in all of this. Uh, there's been a constant tension between hate speech and free speech. And at what point does moderating that speech drift over towards censorship? Um, and if we can't figure that out, you know, uh, what what can we do? What can our social media uh, companies do better uh, to protect folks, particularly black folks, LGBTQ folks, women uh, who, who tend to be uh, first in line when it comes to uh, these demonstrations of of hate uh, and, um, you know, the white supremacy and the focus of white supremacy violence. And so more uh, when we come forward, you're listening to Ariva Martin in real time. I'm Dr. Nick Cordelai-Corte, and I'm joined with Nick Wilson from the Center for American Progress and Terrence J. Evans from the National Bar Association. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time. I'm Dr. Nick Cordelai-Corte, host of A More Perfect Union and chief national political analyst for KBLA Talk 1580, filling in for Ariva, who will be right back right here on Thursday. But in the meantime, I'm in the best of company with Nick Wilson, Senior Director for Gun Violence Prevention at the Center for American Progress. Also, Terrence J. Evans, Director of Region 9 of the National Bar Association. Um, You know, we've been talking, you know, a lot about the interconnectedness between some of the white supremacy violence that we're seeing, not just in the headlines, but we're seeing, you know, sort of surge here in the country the connection between white supremacy violence, um, the uh, availability of guns and, you know, the gun violence that we're seeing uh, across the country and the anti-black, anti-diversity, equity and inclusion movement that is ratcheting up. Um, all of that happening while just this weekend there's a major march on Washington. In fact, it was the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. And, you know, it's not lost on me. It's not lost on you. It's not lost on our listeners. The contrast, you know, between that moment 60 years ago that really changed the history of this country. And fast forward to 60 years where we're at right now, where we're seeing backsliding uh, happening in real time. I think it was Coretta Scott King who said it is the job of every generation to win civil and human rights, right? They're never, they're not permanent, right? It's every every generation has to do their their part to to secure civil and human rights. I want to invite you both to sort of reflect on the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. Uh, uh, do a look back and a look forward, considering what we are up against, Terrence. 
So I think we're in the most critical moments uh, of our lives in American history as it relates to civil rights. And I think that we are going to have to fight to preserve our history, our legacy, our future, because I think there has been an erosion that many people don't necessarily fully recognize. When we look at the affirmative action decision, I co-authored uh, the amicus brief that was written on behalf of 25 California organizations. And what we saw what happened when California eliminated affirmative action was a decrease in enrollment of about 50% of black and brown people in colleges, universities, law schools, dental schools, uh, engineering, you name it. And I'm afraid that we will have a similar type of erosion of enrollment all across the country. We also see the erosion of voting rights, uh, the elimination of our history. And if you don't understand the struggles that African-Americans have had as it related to the Homestead Act that was denied to us, the more than 30 plus massacres of black neighborhoods, the denial of benefits under the GI Bill and Social Security, the denial of access to public schools that our tax dollars paid for, you don't have the correct frame of reference to understand why there is a disparity in the wealth gap between the black community and the white community. So by erasing our history, essentially these folks are trying to dehumanize us. We have to fight against that. We have to take personal responsibility for it. We have to do everything we can to protect our future. And someone who was on the front lines of that fight uh, to protect uh, and preserve our future was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., among so many other uh, civil rights leaders of, of his era. And it's not lost on me that we lost one of the greatest leaders that our country has seen, one of the greatest leaders that the world has ever seen. I mean, still today, he is the youngest person to ever win a Nobel Prize. Can you imagine that? And Dr. King was 39 years old when he was assassinated. It's not lost on me that we lost this great leader to gun violence, to gun violence, right? And so, you know, the issue of gun violence is certainly not new. And certainly, you know, the black community and uh, Americans in general have paid such a heavy price because of our, our unwillingness and Ill inability to, to curb the threat of gun violence, to curb the threat of political violence that uh, we're seeing too many more examples of today. Uh, I've got to ask you, Nick, you know, how are you reflecting on the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington? One of the things that makes me proud to work at the Center for American Pro uh, Progress is that uh, Racial equity and racial justice is not just one team or department, but it's part of everything we do. Um, one of our biggest priorities is shrinking that wealth gap um, that Terrence mentioned. And I think that would do so much to reduce gun violence as much as passing our stronger gun laws. Um, for our team, we realize that we're not going to be able to rest our way out of this problem and we need to pass stronger gun laws, but we can't do it on the backs of overcriminalization. And we need to embrace Dr. King's teaching of coming together and addressing poverty and addressing the root causes, making sure people have excellent housing and education and opportunities. Because right now, um, you know, I've taken this call from my apartment in Baltimore where they invented uh, three-tier redlining and we spend more per capita on police and we have decent gun laws and we're still losing young leaders every day and community leaders every day to gun violence. And so. Um, you know, I, there's so much to be concerned about, whether it's 
threats of democracy or climate or women's rights or all these things. But I'm optimistic that if we come together and build that coalition, that we'll be able to finally have reason and make our community safer and thrive and be more vibrant. And speaking of, of Dr. King, speaking of the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington, speaking of threats to our democracy, um, you know, it's also not lost on me that one of the chief architects of the March on Washington was Bayard Rustin. And there's a big film that's coming out uh, in a few months, uh, brought to us by Netflix, brought to us by uh, the Obama's uh, production company, Higher Grants, their first feature film. Uh, it's called called Rustin. Uh, and, uh, you know, Rustin was a proud black gay man. Full stop. And uh, cut to Georgia, where a school district canceled an author's talk after he said gay. An elementary school principal in Forsyth County emailed parents to apologize last week after Mark Tyler Nobleman used the word in a presentation about the origins of Batman. And so if you can't use the word gay, uh, uh, then think about how many um, of our leaders, how many hidden figures uh, will be buried in time if folks on the right have their way. And so, um, Terrence, I've got to ask you, you know, uh, are you aware of, of any sort of, you know, legal advocacy that is afoot uh, to push back against these don't say gay laws that are making their way uh, through uh, legislatures across the country that are becoming law, that are becoming, you know, standard practice? Are, are you aware of, of any uh, litigation efforts that are afoot uh, that our listeners should know about? Uh, yes, and I think it's uh, quite fitting that you mention uh, Baird Rustin. I actually hosted a Juneteenth Pride event that highlighted uh, the great contributions of Baird Rustin. If it had not been for him, there would not have been the Martin Luther King that we've all come to know, because in addition to the March on Washington, he was behind so much of the uh, infrastructure from the Southern Christian Leadership Conference uh, and many of the, the boycotts. I would say that in addition to litigation efforts, which are important uh, and they're taking place with great organizations like the uh, ACLU and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, uh, Bailiff, which is the largest LGBTQ law association uh, in the country, is also uh, involved in that. It's also important to be involved at the local level as it relates to these school districts, because that's really where a lot of the change is happening, not just in the courtrooms, but in the boards of education uh, in the school districts that our children go to. So we have to start at the ground level and kind of work our way through by the various city, county, and states, because that is where the resistance uh, to, uh, you know, LGBTQ, Black history, and so forth uh, is happening. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you know, I cut my teeth in L.A. politics working as a staffer to an L.A. school board member. And so I think a lot of people, you know, set their sights on Congress and the Senate and in the presidency. And those are important offices that make a material difference in our daily lives. You know, but so do school boards. Um, you know, the policies that they approve, the budgets that they approve and don't approve, you know, especially coming out of the darkest days of the pandemic you know, where so many of our young people are now playing catch up. You know, the work of school boards is critically important. And you know who gets it? Moms for Liberty. They get it uh, because 
about 50% of the folks that they endorsed last election cycle actually won their races. And, you know, Moms for Liberty, and I'm not going to say that they got a MAGA agenda, but I'm going to say that their MAGA, that their agenda looks a little Trumpy to me. That's all I'm saying. Uh, and more uh, with what my guests are saying, more with Nick Wilson from the Center for American Progress and Terrence J. Evans from the National Bar Association. When we come forward, you're listening to Ariva Martin in real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time. I'm Dr. Nicordelai Corte here with Nick Wilson, Senior Director for Gun Violence Prevention at the Center for American Progress, and Terrence J. Evans, Director of Region 9 of the National Bar Association. Just during the break, we were talking about, um, you know, what's at stake in this election cycle. And, you know, there are a number of folks out there that start to pay very close attention to who's running for president or running for re-election. Um, and that's important. The presidency makes a material difference in our lives. There's clearly a big difference between having President Biden and Vice President Harris in office versus, uh, you know, what we had before. Um, we can feel the difference. Uh, and that's important. But there are other offices, non-federal offices, that also make a material difference in our lives. I'd mentioned earlier that, you know, I cut my teeth in L.A. politics uh, out of college as a staffer to an L.A. school board member and learned up close and personal, you know, how uh, much of an impact the decisions of our school boards have on the quality of education of our students, uh, the impact that it has in terms of students being able to see themselves in the course curriculum, their impact in terms of, you know, the teachers that get hired. And sort of the bad apple teachers, you know, uh, that that uh, get removed, they make a big difference, you know. And Moms for Liberty, a conservative group uh, who is gaining a lot of traction, they understand that, you know. But I'm hard pressed to think of, you know, a group on the left, you know, that packs the same punch, you know, as Moms for Liberty. And so, uh, Terrence, you were going to share earlier, um, uh, you know, not just why. Uh, this 2024 election cycle will be so consequential, you know, but, um, you know, help us sort of, you know, reshape our thinking, reshape our priorities, you know, around how we as, you know, as activists, some of us donor activists, you know, might think about this cycle differently. Absolutely. So many of the civil rights setbacks that we've had recently, whether it's women's reproductive rights or affirmative action or voting rights and the erosion of the Civil Rights Act, um, have been as a result of these very conservative appointments that Trump made while he was in office that were basically put in front of him by the Federalist Society. In this next election, it's going to be critical that we have someone who has a progressive mindset to appoint federal judges who serve life tenure uh, so that they will be there to help shape many of the decisions that will govern our lives, whether it has to do with our voting rights or the environment or anything else. Many folks are not thinking about that. Uh, it's going to be critical that we hold on to the U.S. Senate, where many of these appointments are confirmed. Um, and if that doesn't happen, we're going to be in great danger. I listen to both the right and the left. And there's already conversation on the right to federalize uh, abortion uh, bans, to federalize bans on what they call critical race theory, the real teaching of Black history, 
this is our opportunity to prevent that. And one of the dangers uh, that I am worried about are third-party candidates, and I'm all for democracy in all of its forms, uh, but I am concerned that uh, by having too many folks in the race, that this potentially could hand the race to Donald Trump if he gets the election, and he will be that person deciding who gets these federal lifetime appointments uh, to make those decisions that will shape our lives for a generation to come. So clearly we know that uh, our schools are on the ballot, uh, the courts are on the ballot, uh, but also gun safety is on the ballot. And, you know, this continues to be um, an, an issue that is, quite frankly, more polarizing in Congress uh, than it polls among the American people, Democrats, Republicans, and independents. And so, uh, Nick, talk to us about, you know, again, how we might think about our participation in this election cycle a little bit differently uh, than your run-of-the-mill elections uh, being what's at stake uh, in the name of gun safety, not just on the federal level, but the state and local level. You know, there's some progress that's being made around red flag laws, uh, though not enough. But, you know, help us to understand how we might budget our time, talent, and treasure as we head into the 24 election cycle for all of us that care so much about gun safety in this country. As Karen said, what happens in this presidential race is going to be so important and there'll be two very different choices to choose from and you won't be able to escape it. I think a lot of governing is going to slow down and we're going to be focusing a lot on the horse race at the federal level. But a lot of my energy and time right now is focusing at the state and local level. Uh, Congress is polarized, but for the first time in over 30 years, they came together across the aisle last year and had 60 senators vote for the Bipartisan Safer Community Act that's closed many loopholes in our federal gun laws and brought billions of dollars to states and local localities to make our schools safer, invest in the mental health pipeline, and implement things like extremist protection orders when properly implemented can prevent gun violence from ever starting. Uh, but local elections matter just as much. We saw Minnesota, you know, Supreme Court elections is going to change so many policies and set a progressive agenda. Uh, Governor Whitmer's re-election and giving her the a House and a Senate, we've been able to see foundational gun laws that have been absent in this state for a very long time. We saw in Oregon at a ballot box, um, very strong gun laws being passed. And so I'm very, while it's very important to realize the threats, I think a lot of progressives, we don't sometimes take a, a breath to really think about and savor our wins. And we're seeing a lot of wins when people show up to vote for progressives at the local level. And gun safety is a lot like what we're seeing with education or um, censorship or fascism where the blue states are passing stronger gun laws and protecting education and funding women's rights. And the red states are continually to tear down what few gun laws we have or what fundamental rights we have as Americans. And so you have to pay attention to, to all levels this, this cycle. But if you're going to volunteer and go donate money, I would say find a local candidate you believe in, knock on some doors and really invest in that grassroots because that's how we're going to sustain our wins for a long period of time. Um, in our remaining moments, uh, I want to ask you, what uh, what is the lesson that we should glean from uh, the Tennessee uh, three? We know that the Tennessee House Republicans, uh, the majority, they voted to temporarily silence a Democratic lawmaker. Uh, one of the members of the Tennessee, tr Tennessee three, we saw 
that Representative Pearson appeared to be shoved on the floor by uh, the Speaker of the House uh, just today as they ended the special session uh, to address gun safety uh, unsuccessfully. Um, and the session won't begin again until January. And so here we are. Uh, what lessons should activists uh, that are working hard to usher in an era of gun safety, what lessons should they glean from Tennessee, Nick? Justin, Justin, and Gloria taught us you have to be strong and be brave and speak up for what's right. But once you make your moment, you know, they got a lot of followers. They were invited to the White House. They were, but they still were like, no, I, I need to show up for my constituents every day, fight for my seat, fight for democracy. And they fight tirelessly every day. We're excited to, my colleague will be on a panel uh, with Maxwell Frost and Justin Jones at the Congressional Black Caucus Institute coming up soon. But, you know, every day he can be in his district. That's what he's doing, fighting the good fight. In about a minute, Terrence, uh, what what lesson uh, do you think we should glean from the Tennessee Three and just the, the logjam in terms of advancing uh, gun safety legislation, meaningful gun safety legislation in Tennessee? Uh, we're in the fight for our lives, the fight for our democracy. Systemic racism is not going to just disappear. We need people uh, like those three to put their lives, their minds, their talent on the line to fight for justice. We need more than just black faces in high places. We need people to invest in themselves, their capital, to make this happen. And together, we can accomplish this. Together we can, and together we shall. My thanks to uh, Terrence J. Evans, Director of Region 9 of the National Bar Association, and Nick Wilson, the Senior Director for Gun Violence Prevention at the Center for American Progress. You know, I often say on, on my show, A More Perfect Union, which airs right here on KBLA Talk 1580, every Sunday on the 10th, 10 a.m. and 10 p.m. Pacific time, I often say to my, my leaders, learners, and listeners, don't panic, organize. Do what you can from where you are with what you have. And with that, uh, I've been sitting in for Ariva Martin in real time. I'm Dr. Nicordelia Corte. More on KBLA Talk 1580 when we come forward. Thanks for listening. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate you. Thanks. Have a great evening. You too. Have you too. Evening. And Terrence, thank you for thank you for canceling your uh, your flight, moving your flight in order to be here. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Always happy to be with you. Thank you so much. I'm going I'm to run, not walk, to go get my castor oil 100%. <laughs> I'll give you some as a gift. <laughs> oh, even better. Even better. I'll see you in L.A. soon. Okay, take care. All right, take care. Bye. Bye-bye.